have a TV? No. I just like to read the TV guide. Read the TV guide. You don't need a TV. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another patron episode of 80s All Over. My name is Scott Weinberg, and I am always joined by my co-host, Drew McWeenie, except right now, because he's running late, and he told us to start without him. So we did. We're joined today by the host of one of my favorite podcasts. It is called TV Guidance Counselor. And instead of me describing the concept, I will just introduce the host and allow him to do it. Uh, I, I, I will tell you the honest truth. Uh, I take notes from a lot of good podcasters, and I and and as far as speaking clearly and enunciating, I am a big fan, and I learned a lot from listening to Mr. Ken Reed. Oh, thank you. That is an honor. That's like one of the nicest compliments I've gotten. No, <laughs> from I, the I, show. I, I'm a huge podcast fan, and when I listen to certain ones, I, I take notes. I'm like, ooh, you know that he rambled a little bit. I don't want to do that. Ooh, that was a good joke. Ooh, that was a good, you know, well timed uh, sound effect. Like I listen. And, and I try to improve my game. So why don't you give our listeners just a brief recap, the history and the premise of TV Guidance Counselor. Sure. Uh, I've been doing the show for four and a half years. I'm a stand-up comedian from Boston. I've been doing stand-up for about 15 years. Uh, I own more or less every edition of TV Guide magazine because I'm not a crazy person. And the concept of the show is someone picks an old issue of TV Guide. They go through it and write down what they'd watch that week in history. They hand me the guide. They have their list. And then we press record. That's sort of the, the purest uh, form of the show. Uh, we're about almost up to 350 episodes now. Sometimes I end up having people who were on a lot of the shows we watched growing up. And we just kind of have more of a straight interview. But it's always TV focused. And uh, it's my favorite thing I've done. Oh, that's great. This um, Our podcast is my favorite thing I've done. And I, I've done a lot of things surrounding movies, in which I, I love movies. So I, I've done a lot of fun projects. And, and this podcast is, is uh, my favorite so far. Absolutely. Uh, let me ask you this, Ken. Um, what is it about nostalgia that makes us both like feel warm and cozy, but also makes us want to uh, be analytical and a little bit cynical, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think we're probably uh, slightly more shoegazy and insightful than most people. But, you know, one of the things I talk about on my show all the time is sort of that pre-millennium, pre-social media uh, media where we all sort of experience the same thing. So with television especially, where there are fewer choices, we all have that shared experience. So there are people who are roughly the same age as me who I may be incredibly different from now. We have totally different lives and totally different uh, maybe political beliefs, and we can talk about night court. And we have a shared language and a shared experience, which is interesting and sort of warming. And uh, one of the things I said on the show once is uh, it's kind of about being alone together for a lot of us as kids. Yeah, and it is that. I think that's a good point. It's something that Drew and I haven't really touched on that much. We talk a lot about nostalgia and the good and bad side of it, but we never really got into like the idea of it's something we share. Like we yeah. all, I have a great memory of seeing the Muppet movie. Now, so do you. Yeah. It's not the same memory, but we share a great memory of seeing the Muppet movie. And you know, like that—that's a powerful thing. <laughs> that memory yeah. and that love and that affection and and connection with other people, sharing that love—that's how stuff like nostalgia starts to blind people. 
So how do you keep yourself, um, maybe cynical wasn't the right word, but how do you keep yourself modern? How do you keep yourself not looking backward and with rose-colored glasses? Yeah, I try to be critical of stuff, and there's a lot of stuff I go back and watch that certainly doesn't hold up. There's a lot of stuff that I go back and watch and recognize as being terrible, but I still really enjoy. Like what? And like, there, give, me, give me one example. Uh, something terrible that I really enjoy would be like the TV show Monsters. Okay. <laughs> uh, which was George Romero's uh, anthology follow-up horror series to Tales from the Dark Side. And it was slightly more comedic, and it's awful. It's an awful low-budget bad 80s horror show but i yeah, love I've it i've seen a few random episodes but i would like yeah. to would like to check that it was only one season right <laughs> it was two seasons uh one the episode i would recommend because it's everything that show yeah. is when it's at its best worst is there's a christmas episode starring jenna von oy and it's called glim glim okay. <laughs> and you will not believe i don't want to say anything else it will just right. blow you away I'll, i will watch it tonight absolutely uh, so yeah, but I mean, like, do you ever find yourself like, isn't better, a better way to put it is like, um, think of like uh, a TV movie that you remember from 88 that you loved and now you're watching it. And 15 minutes later in, you're like, Oh God, what was I thinking? Like, do, oh, can yeah. you still enjoy it in a way? Or is it just completely disheartening? Sometimes nostalgia just punches you in the face kind of. Um, it's not that disheartening because I, I was kind of a discerning jerky kid. So I, for the most part, stuff that I liked then, I still like aspects of now. I can't think of anything I watched growing up that I've rewatched and it's just been unwatchable where I've been like, what the hell was I thinking with this? Right. Uh, I'm sure there's something. The other thing I do, and this is pure nostalgia, is for years I've collected uh, beta and VHS tapes of full television broadcasts. And then I digitized them and I've traded them for years. And it's, it's slightly less of a thing now because so much stuff's been on YouTube in the last year or two, but sometimes there's stuff that's terrible, but I'll enjoy watching the DVD wow. of it. I have, cause there's commercials and all that kind of stuff. Oh and yeah. No, I, I love that as well. It's ironic that, you know, back in the day you'd be like, Oh, commercials. But if you're watching something ultra retro and a bunch of 1983 commercials come on, you'd be like, I'll watch these now. <laughs> yeah. That's part of the whole thing. Especially like uh, Saturday morning stuff. Yeah, or any of that. Here's a legal question you might be able to help me with. Um, just add, you know, I'm, I'm not planning to do this, but like there are certain TV movies, and we'll get into this in a bit. There are certain TV movies from the 80s that I love. Now, who owns the rights to a 1981 ABC made for TV movie? Does ABC still own it? Do the producers own it? Who, it's you know a mixture. I mean? like, it's yeah. a mixture. And and usually it's not the network these days. So for the most part, the the production of those made for TV movies were farmed out to sort of independent production companies. They want they most of them weren't in-house productions. Sort of the big mini, you know, the big event television was, but those movie of the weeks generally weren't. And so a lot of those got bundled up and sold. And it's very complicated, especially with the deregulation in 96. There are people who own rights to movies and they don't know they own the rights to those movies. And it's extra complicated with TV movies because so many of those got bundled together and sold as movies in other countries. So right. because we live in a, you know, a global conglomerate world, the, the fact that they were European rights doesn't matter that much anymore. So, so some weird, you know, uh, company might own that movie and not even know it. Great. Great. That's interesting because yeah, there are some, uh, in, in months past, I have delved into YouTube thinking of the most obscure TV movies I could and be like, that one's not there. Oh, the, wow, that one is. Well, how'd that happen? And, and partially thanks to people like you. 
Yeah, it's funny. There, there are ones that the the studios produced and they made all the stars of their shows be in. Uh, they were contractually obligated to be in. So most of those were the teen movies. You know, your um, your Crash Course, your uh, your um, Secret oh, Admirer, uh, Summer Camp. Yeah, uh, uh, Camp Cucamonga. Um, well, one with Michael J. Fox. Poison Ivy. Poison Ivy. Poison Ivy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which I always thought anyone thinking they were renting the Drew Barrymore Poison Ivy and getting that would be disappointed. Oh, yeah. And anyone thinking they were renting that and renting the Drew Barrymore one would be disappointed. Nobody would be happy there. Uh, right, but that well, yeah, was. I, I did ask you. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, but those were produced in house by like NBC. So they would own that. They would own stuff like High School USA and that kind of thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, well, I asked you to write down a list of underrated not, uh, 80s features. But we're going to hold that segment because Drew should might show up halfway through. So okay. I'm going to skip forward to the second segment, and I'm going to throw you some relatively uh, – well, maybe not to you, but to most people, these would be obscure TV movies. And I want to hear either uh, what you think of them or if, if they're worth me digging back up again. Okay. Uh, what can, I'll start with an easy one. What can you tell me about Don't Go to Sleep? Don't Go to Sleep is Valerie Harper. Uh, it's, it's, there's some genuinely creepy things in that movie. Uh, Only thing I remember from that movie is uh, an iguana in a bed with Ruth Gordon. That's it. And there's a couple of deaths by pizza cutter. Uh, the, uh, the final moment of that movie is truly terrifying. It's a little boring. It's, it's in that evil children subgenre. Uh, but it's worth watching. It's it's one that people often bring up as something they saw when they were a small kid that completely terrified them and scarred them. And I, I think certain scenes of it hold up to that. But it's it's a little wheel spinny. It's a little melodrama. But it's not a bad movie. How uh, how how readily available is that one? That one's very easy to find. There was a commercial VHS release, and there's a lot of bootlegs of it. Got it. All right. Here's one slightly more obscure: The Intruder Within. Intruder Within, was this... Uh, Craig Evigan uh, on an oil rig. Oh, this one I don't know. It's an uh, alien knockoff from 81. Oh, wow. I've not seen this one. I know Intruder Within, the one that Corman did, uh, which there was a sequel that, uh, to. That's Terror Within. Oh, ter- that's right. It's Terror and then Within. there's also a TV movie with Barbara Eden called Stranger Within, which yes. was a an exorcist, I believe. Knockoff. Yep, that was, uh, a, that was a possession movie. Right, yeah, I've no. I've not seen Intruder Within, but now I'm intrigued. Yeah, yeah, Chad, um, I said Greg Evigan. I was wrong. Chad Everett. Oh, okay. Same difference. Yeah, yeah uh, Chad Everett, more. Joseph Bottoms, Jennifer Warren, uh, Matt Craven, uh, clearly a young Matt Craven. Yeah. Personnel on an oil rig near Antarctica discover a bizarre fossil that exerts a mesmeric influence over some of them and gradually regenerates into the horrible embodiment of an evil that has lain dormant since the beginning of time. So this is like a TV combination of Prince of Darkness and The Thing. Except it predates both. Interesting. It's 81. And Carpenter did make a lot of made-for-TV movies, so... Yeah. Uh, so I'm, now I'm really curious to know what you think of this one. If you uh, dig it up and, and let me know what you think, The Intruder Within from 81. Yeah, I'll look for that. <clears throat> How about a, a, re- a fairly well-known TV movie that we co- we're going to cover briefly in an upcoming episode? What can you tell me about Ed Zwick's Special Bulletin? Special Bulletin is amazing. Uh, Special Bulletin is uh, one of the original sort of uh, War of the Worlds influence movies where they presented it as an actual news broadcast. And what it is is essentially it's it's an actual news broadcast of 
the end of the world. <laughs> it's about a nuclear holocaust. And there are some uh, eco-terrorists that um, essentially kidnap a ship full of nuclear weapons. They're going to fire them off and start a, a World War III. And you're watching it as newscasts. And it was uh, Edswick and I forget the other guy, Marshall Her uh, Hershkovitz. Marshall, Marshall Hershkovitz, right. Yes, who created uh, 30-something and yeah. My So-Called Life. And yeah, they went, both went on to huge careers, yeah. Yeah, and it's great. It's it's really chilling, and it's unusual. It's People are a little bit uh, numb to the found footage sort of thing now, but presenting it like a news broadcast, which there was a British uh, 90s uh, TV movie called Ghost Watch that also did a similar thing. Okay. Uh, but it's, it's very, very good. It's very yeah, well, good. Well, what Drew and I covered uh, the day after and Testament, I remembered briefly. I went, what's that? Oh, yeah, Special Bulletin, and it is readily available. Uh, Warner Archive yep. put it out. Yep. And um, I'm going to revisit that soon. Uh, Man, te Testament is brutal. Ooh, yeah, that was originally produced for PBS, but then got a theatrical release. Yeah, because it's so yeah. good, but it's not something you'd want to watch more than half. No, no. no. <laughs> when, I mean, it's, they're, they're both really brutal. All right, here's one that stuck in my head my entire life, because I am a huge fan of spoof movies and satires. Do you remember one? I'm sure you remember it, but... What do you know about Murder Can Hurt You? Oh, yes. This was uh, 85, I want to say. I don't uh, I just shot the title and, down. I didn't look. Hold on. Yeah. And this was sort of a spoof of like the, the Columbo type things. Yep. Uh, I oh, can't it's actually 80. 80, is it really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't remember a lot of it. I remember watching it and it was, it reminded me of Student Bodies, kind of. Yes. It's that kind of satire. For, and yeah. It's got, it's got Tony Danza, Jamie Farr, John Biner, Gavin McLeod, Connie Stevens, Jimmy Walker, Burt Young. That's a hell of a cast. Don Adams. Oh, the narrator. Yeah. No, I'm a spoof of TV crime dramas. Someone is murdering all the great detectives and cops, and it's up to the remaining few to find the killer and stop him. And if you I, I don't remember one iota of this movie, but if you um if you if you like it, uh thank Ken. <laughs> Because it maybe inspired me to think of it. I'm going to dig it up. Murder can hurt you! Exclamation point. May 1980. Yeah, this that re-aired a lot on USA Network in the late 80s and the early 90s. They would air it a lot with a movie called Wacko. Oh uh, yeah, we covered Wacko. Oh yep. boy. And uh, there's another one that is sort of a spoof. It's not Cheerleader Camp. I can't uh, remember the name of it. Pandemonium. That one. Yeah. yeah. They would always air it with that and Pandemonium. Oh, wow. All right, so so those since you've gotten kind of what I I like the horror the the obscure weirdo comedies, can you uh, throw out a couple of TV movies from the '80s that would fit this kind of niche? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it was actually somewhat tough because I was saying before we started recording, I'm a huge horror guy, and the best horror made for TV movies were actually in the '70s and in the '90s. So the '90s we had a lot of really great Stephen King adaptions. The '70s you had you know Salem's Lot, Trilogy of Terror. Uh, you had uh, The Night Stalker, The Night Strangler, uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, Bad Ronald, and all these great things. So the '80s was a little bit of a um, of right. a, a right. yeah, it was a little bit of a desert. But uh, Wes Craven made four made-for-TV movies. Uh, and I don't know if you've seen them, but one of my favorites. I have seen uh, Chiller. What are they called again? Oh, Chiller. There's Chiller, Invitation to Hell. I've, uh, seen, I've seen that. I've seen Spontaneous Combustion. Oh, no, no. Yeah. That, no, Spontaneous no, Combustion was a theatrical Hooper. movie. And that was yeah, Toby yeah, Hooper, right. yeah. Um, 
but he also made uh, on Deadly Grounds. I want to say it was called. Mm-hmm. Oh, what? And then made one with Linda Blair called. Oh man, I'm blanking. But it's uh, it's she's like a possessed cousin that comes and lives with this family, and uh, he got hired because he could make um, movies cheap and fast. So they were like, come on in to CBS yeah. and make these movies. Um, but aside from that, there wasn't a ton. And my my absolute all-time favorite one, I believe it's from 1985. Oh, I got it. I'm sorry. I, lo- I, I, I don't want to interrupt you. I had to look no. it up. Uh, 78, he did Summer of Fear. Yes, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. 84, he did Invitation to Hell. 85, yep. he did Chiller. And then 90, he did Night Visions. Yes, as, which was an anthology. As far as TV movies go, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, John Carpenter did the Elvis movie and then also did um, uh, Body Bags and Someone's Watching You. Someone's Watching Me. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, my favorite, all time favorite horror 80s made for TV movie is The Midnight Hour. Oh, I, I, I like it, too. But you know, sell it. The Midnight Hour is uh, sort of a teen comedy. It's sort of a, it's like if Ghoulies was a good movie, um, but it's got, it's got a uh, Sherry Belafonte in it. It's got uh, Peter DeLuise and pretty much every character actor from every eighties TV show ever uh, on Halloween night. These kind of uh, asshole teenager high school students steal a cursed uh, chest that unleashes a demon who proceeds to uh, turn the entire town into monsters. And there's some genuinely scary scenes in it. There's a really scary werewolf. Uh, There's a a horrific scene uh, with uh, a vampire that's very good. And then there's also a full-on musical number in the middle where Sherry Belafonte sings a song called I'm Dead that's basically uh, her version of Thriller. There's a lot of actually weirdly I remember virtually none of this. I do remember watching it and my friends talking about it at school the next day, but... I remember virtually none of this movie. <laughs> it's great. It, I mean, the special effects are great. Uh, it uses the Smiths. How soon is now in it, which is really hip for 1985 nice. uh, for a, for a network movie in a scene where Sherry Belafonte is killed as all these champagne bottles explode with blood everywhere in a wine cellar. Uh, LeVar Burton is in it. Uh, and it, there's a, an undead cheerleader who is sort of the good demon. And it's, uh, it's very, very good. It's got a cool Halloween atmosphere and I, I would highly recommend it if you like, uh, uh if you like Halloweeny sort of horror movies. Yep. Uh, and that is from, uh, Jack Bender, uh, the director, uh, I believe is no Jack Bender. I wanted to say the hidden, but that's Jack shoulder. Yes. Uh, Jack shoulder. Who uh, did the, the blob? Jack, the Bender, uh, Jack Bender's only other credit. He's, he's he directed Child's Play three. So there's that's how I <laughs> remember oh, his name. What a, what a yeah, film but Midnight Hour. Whenever you mention uh, a favorite TV mo- horror movies, that one will come up within the first three or four. Any others, or should we uh, Google? People usually bring up Mr. Boogity. Uh, I'm not Maybe a huge Disney Channel one, right? Yep. There was it was only an hour. It was a Wonderful World of Disney Sunday night uh, Halloween special, and they did a, a sequel called Bride of Boogity. They aired on Disney Channel forever later, uh, but they're okay. Um, and then it's not a traditional horror movie, but I would put the Hug a Bunch movie on that list. I don't know if you've seen it. I have not. Uh, oh my God! It is, is it a network version of like the Care Bears movie. Sort of. Uh, it's live action, and it is oh. horrifying. It. I vaguely remember the phrase "hug a bunch" as like a baby toy. <laughs> it was a baby toy. It was like these sort of cabbage patch doll ripoffs. But okay. the, the movie is essentially a cross between Labyrinth, 
the Dungeons and Dragons TV show and I guess like the Ewoks Battle of Endor. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny that, A, I used to love that old Saturday morning Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. And uh, uh, B, that's a great segue because I was going to ask you your opinion as a Star Wars fan and as a, a TV historian. What are your thoughts on the two Ewok movies? I thought they were pretty good. I, I thought they kind of gave because I, I actually really like the droids cartoon as well, wow. uh, and and I thought they were decent. They were you know they're family movies, and they kind of gave. Although that little blonde kid did kind of creep me out. Yeah, yeah, it's weird how a bad kid actor can just <laughs> stick oh, in your yes. mind forever. Oh, uh, yes. But yeah, I have not seen the. I have not revisited the Ewok movies since they were on television, and you know generally. When when someone asks you about the the uh, you know the the side Star Wars stuff, your first reaction is to be like meh. But I would revisit them if Drew wants to do a bonus episode for the Star Wars movie uh, for the Ewok movies. I'll consider that. Yeah, um, and the cartoon the cartoon is actually really good. The Nelvana cartoon, the the droids and Ewoks cartoon. All right, now, when's that? What year is that from? Uh, eighty three. I want to say Paul oh, okay, Dini wow. worked on it. Was it uh, a lot of, that that, yeah, that was it, the first animated Star Wars. Yes, I believe so. Uh, Except for and, all the Boba Fett thing, duh. Right, right from the from the Christmas special. But um, everyone that worked on Animaniacs and uh, Tiny Toons and Batman the Animated Series kind of all met on that Star Wars cartoon. Nice, nice, very cool. Why don't we uh, spend a few minutes? Uh, this is not a movie, but in many ways, amazing stories gave us uh, mini movies uh, because it was produced by Spielberg and brought in some very good uh, directors. So why don't you, Ken, if you would, throw me your t- two or three favorite episodes of Amazing Stories. My absolute favorite one is called Thanksgiving Day, and it takes place in a sort of Mad Max dystopian future, and this guy discovers that a well is dry, but there's these creatures in the well that when he sends them meat, uh, they give him gold. Oh, I vaguely remember this. Vaguely. I'm going to watch it tonight. It's <laughs> I horrifying. I remember stories rarely went scary. And when it did, I was like, yay. Yeah. Because usually amazing stories was wistful and sweet and, or a little bit dangerous, but rarely scary. Uh, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish. That one is great. And then there's one called, I think it's called Mummy's Day, where this actor is playing a mummy in a... Can't get out of the costume. Can't get out of the costume. And it's really funny and weird, and there's some scary stuff. I enjoy that one. And then there's one called Head of the Class with Christopher Lloyd, where he plays uh, just a bastard evil teacher who these kids kids decapitate. (laughs) And, uh, And then he comes back from the grave. Yep, and it's an obvious one, but I, I really still love the um, the the that that uh, special edition, but that uh, the extended episode about the uh, the bomber and oh, how yeah. it, can't, it can't land because it doesn't have any gear. Like that, that is probably the prototypical Amazing Stories episode, but I, I still think it's beautiful. That was the pilot. Oh, was it? I did not yeah. know that. Yeah, that was the pilot episode with uh, Casey Sometsko. Yeah, Who's yeah, that, it's got yeah. a lot of good people in that episode that you might not remember. Uh, yeah, yeah got, stories, why do you think it only let, went two seasons? I think that it was really expensive, and it, it was. They they basically had a movie budget every every week. They were very late with episodes, so there was a lot of reruns. Uh, I think the first season is is an abortive season. It's not a full season because they, they just couldn't pump out the episodes fast enough. And a, a lot of it was pretty boring. Um, there's some fondly remembered episodes. Oh, there's also a great Christmas episode where Santa gets trapped in a house when he sets off the burglar alarm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, so, and I think if if you were to tell somebody of our approximate age, uh, I'm going to binge watch both seasons of amazing stories. Would you say, yeah, do that. Or would you say as Dr. Ken Reed, allow me to prescribe 12 key episodes. I would probably, it depends on who they were. I'm not asking you to prescribe them now. I'm just saying, which would be better. No, it depends on who the person was and how badly I wanted them to suffer. But, um, I, you know, I would say, please, uh, I'm here for you if you try to attempt this and, uh, you know, hydrate. But uh, if you want to revisit Amazing Stories, uh, Ken, what is your uh, Kenneth W. Reed on Twitter? Yes. Go, and, yeah. go make sure you go ask him which episodes that you should watch because yeah. uh, Amazing Stories, it, it really is peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. I admire the series as a whole. But even as a kid, I remember thinking this is a grown-ups episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And one of the things that uh, anthologies had a huge comeback in 1985. There was, I think, ten television anthologies that came on the air in '85. And- All right, wait, wait, wait. wait. Off the, let me see. Let's back and forth. Uh, well, we already said that uh, there was monsters. There yep. was, and uh, I'm going to say the new Twilight Zone. Yep. New New Outer Limits was later, right? That was in the '90s on Showtime. Yeah. All right. So. Uh, Twilight Zone. Um, oh, by the way, if we're going to just ramble, my very favorite episode of the Twilight Zone reboot is the one where she can stop. She's got the thing that stops time. And yes. the last image on the screen. I'm not. Don't, let's not spoil it. Yeah. But um, uh, it's that, who called, was that in that? That was Melinda Dillon, maybe? Yes. I think that's called The Lost Hour. Is that what that yeah, episode and it's Basically, yeah. it's an episode about the Twilight Zone where a woman finds, I believe it's like an amulet or something. And when she holds yeah. it and says, stop, time stops. And when she yeah. says, start time starts and it ends on such a wonderful, brilliant gut punch. Yep. Uh, I don't even know if it's based on a, an original Serling or not, but no, it's, it's not. It's oh, a, okay. it was, it was based on a story from twilight zone magazine from the seventies that my two, that's one of my favorites of that series. My favorite episode is called world wordplay and okay. it stars Robert Klein. And it's a perfect example of how horror and comedy are intrinsically linked. And it starts off very funny and the concept without changing becomes terrifying. And it has such a haunting final image. It's perfect. It's really great. Oh, and, Ted, okay. So of these anthology series, where would you rank the twilight zone reboot? Uh, they're so uneven because they have so many episodes, but I, I would put that up at the top. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember being pleasantly surprised because my father wasn't a huge fan of many things when I was a kid, but my father was a huge fan of the original Twilight Zone. And so when this new show started, there was no question of what was on TV that night. We were watching that. And I was pleasantly surprised. I remember thinking, hey, this show's good. You know, it was like, really good. Yep. It, it was great. They had great writers and uh, really good casts and like a lot of movie stars. Uh, do you remember the episode The Shadow Men? Probably not. No, let's say no. <laughs> That's a great one. It's about a kid who has a, a monster under his bed, essentially. And then um, it's worth watching, actually. I won't ruin it because the, right, the, the one of the most worth... fun things, Ken, right? About digging through these old anthologies from Friday the 13th and Freddy's Nightmares to the to yep. Twilight Zone and, and, and uh, Tales from the Dark Side, Tales from the Crypt. It's not just enjoying a good story. It's like, holy crap, there's Gary Busey. Holy crap, yep. this was written by... Joe Dante. Holy crap. <laughs> Look, there's, you yep. know, Ray Don Chong. Um, yep. Mick Harris and Frank Darabont and all these yeah. directors. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a great time doing that. So, yeah, there, I never really thought of it. But you're right. The mid to late 80s was kind of a, a, a second, not a, I won't say golden age, but a big resurgence of anthology. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, when, and it when was Tales from the Crypt on HBO? When did that start? That started June 1989. With a, oh, with so a, it counts. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, can it does. Claim it. Yeah, and it it was actually the three episodes aired as a movie, and they aired theatrically in Europe, and HBO aired the three episode ninety minute movie as a movie without uh, having that's plans. That's fascinating to, to me. You'd probably be really good on that, even theatrical stuff where it's like, um, certain uh, like the, we talked about this on Twitter the other night. Splash Two and The Jerk Two. Those yep. were made for television, but they played theatrically in a lot of countries. So when we, yeah. you know, immediately go, what the fuck is this? Somebody from Brazil says, oh, I went to see that with my grandmother when I was a kid. What do you mean? What is this? I loved it. Yeah. 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 That's great. All right. So, uh, you know, what we'll have to do when we get to like 87 or 88, we'll have to have you come back and do an episode just on Tales from the Crypt. Oh, I'd be psyched to do that. Yeah, because, I mean, as far as pure horror anthology goes, you know, Twilight Zone and Outer Limits had some brilliant, scary stuff. But as far as shows dedicated strictly to horror, Tales from the Crypt is so great. It's so great. And we talk about, like, in anthology movies and in anthology series, it's just a chain. And you might have great, great weak link, weak link, weak link, great episode, great episode. I think the batting average of Tales from the Crypt might be the best of all these anthologies. Yeah, and they also had the best source material. So they were using directly using the comic stories from the 50s. Right, right. So <laughs> they really had that example, you know. Great. All right, let's go into another topic that I think fascinates movie geeks and TV junkies in equal measure. I'm sitting down to watch, say, Halloween 2. Yes. On, on television. And I've seen Halloween 2 multiple times at this point. And now there are scenes in a classroom? Wait, what's this? Sam Hain is written on the wall? Wait, I what am I? I never even had discovered marijuana at this point. So I didn't know. (laughs) So why don't you explain to our listeners who might not know how and why some of your favorite movies got extra scenes when they played on television? There was sort of two reasons for that. Well, there was one reason, but two sort of uh, solutions. So the reason being, it was usually horror movies. They would often cut stuff that they could not air on network television or even UHF television. So, you know, some of the violence or nudity, and they would need to fill time. So a lot of times what they would do, the cheapest way, was to put in what essentially we would now know as deleted scenes. And they really didn't have any rhyme or reason to having them in there. They just wanted to fill time. So oftentimes you'd see a movie that had these deleted scenes that now made no sense in the context of the <laughs> final edit of the movie. And that was the case with your your Halloween 2 example. Uh, there's also, I think it was Star Trek the movie and Superman 2... They put in deleted scenes, but they were scenes that were supposed to have special effects that were never done. <laughs> so oh, wow. in, the, in the middle of the movie, there's a scene where they're like basically at a blue screen <laughs> and you're seeing, you're like, what is happening? So you had that as well. But there were also some movies where they shot specific things for TV. Uh, my favorite example is the movie Return of the Living Dead. Um the main character, uh Freddie, has a varsity jacket that says FU on the back which clearly you couldn't just blur out. So they reshot every scene that jacket's in with a different jacket that says TV version on the back. Oh, what? Yeah. That's funny. So every scene that that jacket's shown in, the take you're seeing in the TV version is a different take, and they're slightly different. Can you you think of any other... It doesn't have to be horror. Can you think of any other films off the top of your head that have noteworthy added scenes? The big one is Goonies. 
So for years, people, that scene where Data at the end is talking about an octopus and that you yep. never saw the octopus, that Except scene Rose is- nerds who read the novelization, we knew what happened to the right. octopus. That's right. I mean, that's the other thing. The novelizations were written based on the shooting script so they could come out at the same time as the movie. Yep. So stuff would get, that was the other way we got deleted scenes. But uh, yeah, in Goonies, there's two scenes that I can think of specifically that got re-added into the TV version. One is the octopus scene, which it's a really bad special effect. And I can see why yeah, it was it cut. Is, it is really, you know, and it's like any Goonies fan definitely is like, you've heard of it, legendary. Yeah, you should want to see it. Don't expect it to be anything great. No, you don't need it in the movie. And there's a scene that I actually like where um, uh, one of the jerk, uh, I think the, the guy oh, who blows up on the toilet he burns the map in a convenience store it's when they're driving to the fratelli's place and uh they encounter that guy and he, he burns part of the map there uh in the ah. convenience store. and that's it's just kind of a small moment that doesn't really add anything to the plot but it's actually kind of a cool scene so the octopus scene was shown in on a network television version i did not know that Yes, and uh, another one which I think counts because it's 1989 is Amazon Women on the Moon. Uh, there's two segments that are not in the theatrical version, whole segments, whole sketches. That, you know, that's uh, weird. You would think that it would go the other way of like, oh, this this one segment, because it's an anthology comedy film, uh, this one or two segments a little too raunchy, let's just pull it out whole. But no, yeah. they added two scenes. So what, yes. what were those? So there's a, a, I think it's a roast of somebody's a dead person that's added into the TV version. There's a sketch, a long sketch with a evil ventriloquist dummy, and that replaces the penthouse pet one, which obviously they're not going to show on TV. Right. Uh, and I think the um, unsolved mysteries uh, one gets replaced in the in the TV version. So there was that as well, which is very strange. I um one thing, and it was just something that like made me realize at a young age what a what a militant, crazy movie nerd I was, is that when I saw the thing on television, uh, Stevie Wonder's superstition, superstitious was not on the radio. Childs was right. listening to something else. It was just some kind of like Muzak or something. Yeah. And I, I remember saying, "That's not the right song. Why would they change right. the song? That's so stupid." Yeah. Like, we can't handle this? Yeah, and then, yeah, then many years later, I realized, oh, they must have just had the rights for theatrical or home video, and they didn't have to the television rights to the Stevie Wonder song, so they just yanked it out. Now, you know, that happens a lot on television uh, video releases and whatnot, so. Yeah, uh, oh, totally. All right. Uh, any other, uh, off the top of your head, any other, like, because I think these are like, I get it, like, deleted scenes have kind of ruined this, but back in the day, these were like, like, hidden treasure. Like, oh, yeah. you know, to see that scene in Halloween, too, even if it wasn't that good, you know, that that cool of a scene, it's just, oh, we saw something that was rare or wasn't supposed to be seen. Yeah, it was not meant to really be seen. It was and it was sort of an afterthought. There's a there's a TV edit of the Monster Squad that's no. very. Yeah. With a lot of different stuff in it that hasn't been on any other version. And, and uh, uh, you have access to that. I do have access to that. Oh, my. I might want to check. Uh, out <laughs> yeah yeah that that's that is an interesting one um and it, it, you know even uh gower and has you know why that. i hate to say i i want I, I would like to check that out for an for a weird reason and that reason is i think a lot of the profanity in that movie is really awkward and like, yeah i don't like in like stand by me the profanity from the kids feels kind of natural in the monster squad a lot of that language just feels forced and unrealistic and i would be curious to see, not even if it's different, not even lesser uh, profanity, just different takes of the scenes. You know? Yeah, 
I actually I don't remember if that's the case in that or not. I'd have to rewatch it. My my favorite re-editing though for swears. Are you familiar with uh, the Repo Man Melon Farmer? Oh, I've heard of the legend, but you go ahead. So I'm sure you know much more about it than I do. Alex Cox, uh, who directed and wrote Repo Man, when he made the deal for the movie, he put a clause in the contract that he would get to do the TV edit, which was a really weird thing to put in there. And so he wrote a all the thing too, if you ask me. Oh yeah, and he he thought you know he's British too, so he thought the concept of having to re-edit swears was ridiculous. So he invented swears for that movie. So uh, and can we swear on this? Yes. Uh, motherfucker is melon farmer. Right. And so the, it's called the Melon Farmer edit. And it's actually on the UK disc of the, the Blu-ray. I believe and it might be on the Criterion release. It's on too. the Criterion too. It is hilarious because they're just the most bizarre, weird, it just terms. They're not even swears. Yeah, I'm uh, like, uh, my good friend James Rocky is uh, Canadian-born. And he is a very proper gentleman. So when he wants to express umbrage in, in an extreme way... He says, shut up, Melon Farmer. And in yep. one year, I just asked him, where'd you get that from? And he went, oh, my God, it's from Repo Man. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. You know, it's 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 so great. It's like a whole different movie and a whole different and perfect for that movie, too, given what the sort the, of themes. <laughs> excuse me. <clears throat> what can you tell me about? But let's talk more about uh, bad TV edits. Let's start with the great, great granddaddy of bad TV edits, Brian De Palma's Scarface. <laughs> I, uh, what was, so this is an interesting thing I discovered, uh, a couple things actually having people on my show is that there were people who specialized in doing the voice of certain actors for TV edits. So, uh, um, you had, I'm trying to think, oh, Dave Coulier always did Eddie Murphy and, uh, Richard Pryor. Oh my. So in TV edits of those movies, it's Dave Coulier doing the voice of those guys on swears. Um, really? Yes. And then the other thing that amazed me was, and it's not so much with the swears because they needed someone to come in and do it, but when they would air movies on TV, and this went through the 80s, it started in the 70s, they would actually ship prints of the movie to the UHF station, and they had in-house editors that would get a moviola and physically cut the film. So depending on where you lived, there were different things cut out of different movies, which oh. is really weird. Yeah, I did not know that. I, I just assumed that the, the uh, distributor had a TV cut, and that was what they sent you. Sometimes they did, some of the big studios, but for the most part, they didn't care. They're, you know, they already have prints. They're not sending them to theaters because the movie's been out of theaters for years, so they're like, here's a print, cut out what you want, whatever. <laughs> right, right, you paid for the license, do what you want. Um, yeah. Let, let me ask you this. Can you, other than Scarface, can you think of any like hilariously bad uh, uh, TV like swear removal? Uh, flipping money. Forget you is always a good one. Yeah. Uh, my favorite one, though, is from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And bad. it's when Spicoli calls Mr. Hand a fucking dick. And in the movie, in the TV movie, he calls him a fuzzy nerd. Fuzzy nerd. Yes. Now, all right. So, how much of this editing is like them having to lip sync? Like, it, I, it's a mixture. I think it depends. Yeah. So, 
some movies, especially some of the big studio movies, they would make a deal in advance, not for TV, but actually for airplanes. So they would have to do an airplane edit and they would shoot alternate takes for that. So uh, Fast Times Ridge Run High, I think, is one where they shot alternate takes because the scene where Judge Reinhold is uh, cleaning the words Big Hairy Pussy off the mirror in the, in yep. the uh, it says, uh, eat it in the, right. in the edit. So, and that's not CG, you know, they, they redid that scene. So I believe it is actually, uh, Mr. Sean Penn saying fuzzy nerd. <laughs> fuzzy nerd. I don't understand that. I it do makes, love it though. Makes no sense. All right. Well, we are going to close out with what the main, uh, the main course here. And that of course is feature films. Uh, I, I'm always taken, uh, you are a TV expert, uh, par excellent. But, uh, one thing that I like about your show is realizing that, oh shit, this guy knows movies. He's not just a TV guy. So, uh, let's put TV aside and let's focus on what we are calling Ken Reed's underrated eighties classics. Let's so this start. was, yeah. This was tough because, uh, you know, so many movies that I would have considered underrated classics have been rediscovered and have this huge cult audience now. So movies like Three O'Clock High and Miracle Mile and After Hours and Real Genius, oh. uh, you know, all those I, I think people kind of all know about. So um, I had to discount those. So the, the first one I have on here, which I know for a fact has not discovered its cult audience, is a, is a crown international comedy called Hunk. Hunk. Okay. Uh, are you familiar? Uh, we, yes, we have discussed Hunk, believe it or not, with the <laughs> aforementioned James Rocky. But go ahead, give us your take. This is hilarious. We're not going to get to Hunk until 87. We're just starting on 84. Yeah. But I think, yeah, you are definitely at least the second guest to discuss this Lawrence Bassoff classic. Go. Yeah, it's got James Coco in it as the devil. In uh, a nerd basically <laughs> sells his soul to become a cool California hunk. And it's played by uh, the guy from uh, Kill Crown Smarter Space who wrote Deathstalker 4. I can't think of his name. Yeah, John Nelson. Yes, yes. Uh, and it is just, it's it's weirdly not as like horny and, and TNA as, as you would think it is. And it's kind of a sweet, almost like family movie in a lot of ways. Uh, and it's just a fun, weird eighties beach movie, uh, that I weirdly have a somewhat sizable collection of memorabilia from in my house. Wow. Yeah, uh, I got, I got a hunk license plate. Apparently, so, yeah. uh, this movie features an early, early, early appearance by a very big star. Does it? Uh, it says that Brad Pitt is an extra in this movie. That's possible. There's a, a lot of party scenes and, you know, lining up what he was doing in 87, which was uh, Growing Pains and Head of the Class. Yeah, uh, here, uh, yeah. just uh, IMDb trivia says that 16 minutes in, when Bradley Brinkman is in introduced to Skeet Mecklenburg, look for Brad Pitt as an extra seated in a beach chair. Yeah, I'd buy that. <laughs> uh, so it's a fun movie. It's 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 a stupid movie, uh, but it's you know if you're looking for uh, an '80s sort of teen comedy type movie and and you've exhausted all the the big ones, that's a good one. Yeah, uh, and the weird part is the premise just sounds like a typical TNA exploitation movie, uh, except Hunk is rated PG. Yeah, it's it's a weirdly clean movie, and uh, I also love that the guy, his real name uh, when he turns into this god guy is Hunk Golden. Hunk Golden. Yep. <laughs> he introduces himself. Well, you know what? I am Hunk looking Golden. forward to revisiting it now. I was halfway looking forward to, but now that it has uh, 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 threads of legitimacy from you and James Rocky, I look forward to revisiting Hunk. It's a fun movie. Uh, what else you got? Other, 
I also have the movie. I was After Hours is my favorite Martin Scorsese movie, and I love that movie. Uh, but you know, obviously, a lot of people know about that movie. So I went with a movie that is oddly somewhat similar, and I went with Vamp. Oh yeah, Who's Make Peace and uh, Grace, Grace Jones. Jones. What's and, really interesting to me about Vamp is I just noticed this recently. It was written and directed by a guy named Richard Wenk, who yes. vanished for years, and has in the last seven years has written like eight action movies that yes. you've seen, like um, Jason Statham movies, and and like it, it's a, like a nice comeback. I didn't. Uh, I just remembered his name from Vamp, and 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 I'm, he's just been resurgent lately. Tell our listeners about Vamp and how it's similar to After Hours. Yeah, he had written a, a student film, I think, called Dracula Bites the Big Apple. And so he got this deal to make Vamp. And Vamp is sort of a cross between After Hours and Once Bitten. And it starts sort of like a Revenge of the Nerds type horny teen movie with Gary Watanabe and Chris Makepeace. Uh, and they go into Hollywood to go to this strip club. And it's not a normal script strip club. It's basically a club for vampires. And Grace Jones is this queen vampire and it's completely mental. And she's in this weird... Uh, Keith Herring designed outfit and then um Dee Pfeiffer is in it and she's at her cutest uh and they sort yeah, of are I'll tell you Vamp and Vampire's Kiss are two that I'm really looking forward to revisiting because yeah. I like them but I don't think as a 14 year old horror fan I don't think they were necessarily for me at that point I think like Halloween sequels were for me at that yeah. point Vamp uh, is but weird Vamp and Vampire's Kiss are two movies I'm looking forward to uh, revisiting as a grown up yeah, especially as an After Hours fan, the same guy wrote After Hours wrote Vampire's Kiss as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. And he made a movie called Motorama that I wanted to like and didn't. Oh, and you uh, know it's another great all-in-one-night movie? I'll give you a hint. John Landis. Oh, Into the Night. Yes. That's also on my list. That's, oh, good. Uh, the, yeah, yeah. That's where I thought you were going before you said uh, that uh, I thought you were going to say Into the Night. Yeah, Into but the I'm Night. I'm also is... a huge fan of the all-in-one-night or all-in-one-day, yeah. you mentioned three o'clock high. Uh, another one that's not all that successful, Night in the Life of Jimmy Reardon. I, I yep. love that structure so much. There's another one that I, I had on here, too, which is Keanu Reeves and Lori Laughlin the night before. Which oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. That did not open near me, but I distinctly remember renting it on VHS. It's got, like, them on a bed together or something. Yep. And that's that sort of I like remember kind of liking, actually. It's good. It's sort of like a mixture of risky business and after hours. It's a okay. uh, really interesting uh, movie. Um, and then, of course, Midnight Madness, which is yeah. my favorite uh, all-in-one-night movie, maybe. Um, so that's on my list as well. Uh, there's another horror movie that is uh, objectively not a good movie, but is amazingly entertaining. And it's Neon Maniacs. Oh, man. All I remember is that you can kill them with water. <laughs> yes, it's That's the, all I remember. Oh, and that awesome VHS cover. Yes, yes. Hit and pause, it, hit pause on this episode and look up the old VHS cover for Neon Maniacs and tell yep. me you would not rent that movie. And if go on YouTube and watch the trailer for it, it's Percy Rodriguez, maybe his finest work as a trailer voiceover guy. Uh, it's the, the plot of the movie is essentially the village people of monsters lives inside the Golden Gate Bridge, comes out at night, it kills kids, and they dissolve in water. That's essentially the plot of the movie. Yep. But uh, Percy Rodriguez uh, in the trailer goes, uh, in diabolical order. <laughs> and then uh, it's just amazing. And there's a musical number in there with a battle of the bands. I'm uh, noticing I, that's a trend with you, Ken. You like movies that have precisely one musical number. <laughs> I like it because they have the balls to pull that off and it somehow yep. works. It's very, very strange. Especially I, you know, in a horror movie. It's, it's, not, it's not 80s, but I absolutely love how 40-Year-Old Virgin ended. It's just yeah. like, you know, it's like, how do you end an amiable, likable, crowd-pleasing comedy? 
well, you either like call back to an obvious joke you, you, or you try to write a giant, giant joke. I have an idea. Why not just have the cast sing and dance and smile for 15 minutes or eight minutes? Yeah. That'll be fun. Everybody loves that. Well, uh, yeah, if, you're, yeah. if, you, if you're confident that people like your movie, that is a great way to end your comedy. Absolutely. Uh, and then I have one more pick for a movie and then two controversial ones. My, okay. uh, my other pick is a documentary, Another State of Mind, which is... Oh, yeah. Uh, I know very little about this. Go. Tell, it's a classic punk... Down. It's uh, 1983 or 84. It's a documentary movie about social distortion and youth brigade. They're 17 at the time and they're going on a punk rock tour and it's a tour diary and they go to DC. You see Henry Rollins working at a Hagen does. Uh, and it's a tour diary and it's fantastic. It's like documenting the earliest, uh, like grassroots, uh, um, uh, in what's the word I'm looking for introduction of these punk type. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, and they're kids. They're kids. And, they're, and well, what's it's, it called again? It's called Another State of Mind, and it oh, aired a I lot. Know that one. All right. It's great. It's great. I bet it's, Drew does. Drew is a little bit older than me, so he was into slightly more mature music than I was as a kid. <laughs> At this age, I was still listening to nothing but Weird Al. Nothing. <laughs> uh, but well, no, no, let's throw yeah. back real quick to Richard Wenk. Uh, this is fascinating, yeah. and I mean it in a nice way. Uh, in in '86, he got to do Vamp. Yes. And in 1998, he did Just the Ticket. Not a very good movie. But flash forward to 2006, he wrote 16 Blocks, The Mechanic, Expendables 2, Equalizer, Magnificent 7, Jack Reacher 2, Equalizer 2. That's a comeback beyond, like, he was gone for like 20 years, and now he's like the number one action screenwriter in Hollywood. It's, well, it's he was a... He was a script doctor during that time. He was an uncredited yeah. script doctor for 20 years. And oh, yeah, yeah. That- I mean, don't, yeah, that's a good point. You know, if you ever see a gap in someone's uh, filmography, that doesn't mean they uh, moved to Boston and ran a restaurant. That, you know, yeah. they could very well still be very, very active. It just means credits. Yeah. You didn't, so you hear about people who make one or two weird, good movies from the 80s and then vanish forever. And I, you know, you look at Richard Wank 10 years ago and you'd be like, yeah, he's one of those guys, unfortunately. But, Look, I mean, it's just a nice story. It's just a, it's, it's nice to say. It's great. And oddly, I, it, that doesn't totally surprise me because some of the structure of those action movies is kind of evident in Vamp. That sort of on the run sort of epic quest kind of thing is, is, is not totally outside yeah, of. Yeah, I know uh, a lot of people like Vamp and now you're getting me excited to watch it again. Yeah, it's a great movie. What are your uh, controversial picks? Here are my two controversial picks. They're both sequels and they're both sequels that I like way more than the original. Oh God. Uh, oh God. Oh, God is not one of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was about to say book two. Yeah. Oh, God, you devil. Uh, and they are Meatballs 2, which I think <laughs> is superior to Meatballs in all ways. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Yep. yep. <laughs> I'm dying over here. I know. It, no one ever agrees with me on this. All right. No, no, no. Wait, wait. I, got, I, I, I have anecdotes about Meatballs 2, and I don't hate it. But what, what's your other one? And Caddyshack 2. Dude, fuck you. Get off my show. Come I know. That's the that's the reaction I get from everybody. Get off my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. No, it's not. I'm not that. All right, all right. I mean, let, let's 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 take the easy one first. What was the first movie? Meatballs two. Okay, I I, I do think Meatballs Part Two is like willfully goofy and and it like a lot of the jokes don't land, but the ones that do are legitimate jokes. Like there, there is some legitimately funny shit in Meatballs too. It just doesn't really, 
I, I think that the reason Meatballs is good is because two or three of the actors are quite good and you actually get a little bit of warmth and sweetness that Meatballs Part 2 is just pure farce. There's no humanity in it at all. Yeah, um, yeah but, but I will not, I would, I, it, without revisiting it, uh, I, would give, uh, I would give Meatballs Part 2 on a five-star scale right now, two and a half. Yeah, I would. I'd say yeah. that's true. But I don't. I don't think give meatballs three. Probably. Yeah, but I. I mean, again, all I rem- here's what I remember about meatballs part two. Uh, Meathead the alien. Which his, his parents have Yiddish accents, Jewish accents. Yes. Uh, yes. I remember uh, a boxing match. Somebody's in a tutu. That's John Larroquette. John Larroquette. Thank you. I yes. remember Hamilton Camp. Yep. Okay. Um, Paul Paul Rubens is in it. Paul Rubens, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but no, I, I remember as a kid knowing, okay, this is not a, a real sequel. It's just, you know, we didn't know in name only. It's not, oh, has yeah. nothing to do with the first Meatballs. And once you accept that and you just, it's a really silly camp comedy, it's, it's okay. I, yeah. I, I look forward to digging that one up again. It's 84, right? So we'll be, yes. you and I will be getting to Meatballs part two soon. Yes. Now, and it, yes, the Caddyshack, too. This, no one ever agrees with me. Let, all right, now, my very good friend and, and very astute film critic, Eric D. Snyder, is not a fan of Caddyshack. We have discussed it at length. I, I get where he's coming from uh, as, a, as a film critic and as just a movie nerd. I get some of his complaints, and I don't agree with others. So I, I, I get not liking Caddyshack. I do. I, I get not, like, maybe thinking, yeah, there's a couple of chuckles here and there. Yeah, but it's, I don't it's see how it's a okay. classic. I'm no insanity there. Saying Caddyshack 2 is better is, a, is, is fighting words. Yeah. Well, I, I rewatch. And I want to know why. Go. I enjoy Caddyshack 2. Jackie Mason is really funny in it. I okay. feel like the, uh, there's a lot weirder stuff in it. You have an amazing, crazy portrayal by Randy Quaid as a lawyer who just beats the shit out of people. Uh, you get your Chevy chase who's playing basically rehashing the same gags from, uh, the original. So you can get that in there, but you get Jonathan Silverman, who I think is way more likable than the equivalent character. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily disagree there. Uh, and there's just, it, it ups everything to a higher degree. Like, and when I saw the original, I didn't really care that much about the caddies plight. And this one is way more of a blue collar versus, uh, aristocrat, aristocrats, aristocrats, aristocrats kind of thing. And, wow. and it's, and it's so weird to see a movie that is anchored by Jackie Mason and, and it, he pulls it off. Plus China Phillips is in it. Uh, and there's some hey, really, there's, funny- uh, there's, uh, Dan Aykroyd, Diane Cannon. Yep. Uh, there's some good people in it. And Robert look, Stack. Robert, Robert Stack is the, is the Ted Knight role, right? Yes, and he's hilarious in it. All right. Well, no, and, and, and as, as, as much fun as we've had talking about it, I, I think that no matter what the film, I don't care if it's like nothing but trouble, which is just filth, jar, yeah. good junk on the floor. If you're going to watch it, watch it with a fair shake. And that means yeah. even Caddyshack, too. Like, okay, it has these, these some of these films have reputations for being terrible. But here's the thing, how many, how much of that reputation comes from, oh, well, look at that poster and it's a sequel to a classic and most people don't like it. So of course it's garbage. 
Yeah, well, and it's if it's you actually written. watched it, you might go, yeah, it's not very good, but I laughed five or six times, and that's not bad for eighty-eight minutes. <laughs> and it's written by the same people. It, it's yeah. not even like an in-name only. It's it's funny because I and this will also be blasphemous. I think it's a much better sequel than European Vacation is to Vacation. I don't I don't really like European Vacation. I uh, yeah, not- I think European Vacation has kind of a nasty tone to it. I don't love yeah. it. I think it has a couple of good bits, but I don't know. It it, it seems like. I don't. I don't know. I'd have to. It's I'm going to revisit yeah. it soon. Uh, it's it, it just seems a little bit mean. And and the yeah. first vacation had some like with the dog and your grandmother had some dark humor, but it never really was mean. And yeah. European vacation feels kind of mean. Yeah, uh, I, what about um, where would you compare Caddyshack to in the realm of say Blues Brothers to Blues Brothers 2000? Oh, much better. Okay. Much better. But I get I get what they were going for, Blues Brothers 2000. They didn't care about the movie. They just wanted the musical numbers. Right. They and, wanted to sell a soundtrack. Yeah. Well, I, I think what Landis said was they, there was a lot of uh, musical acts that were going to die soon. And they basically wanted to get a good good footage of them playing. Yeah. So yeah. they didn't really care what the movie was. But Nasty. speaking of, of Jim Belushi, he's also in another incredibly underrated 80s movie. Don't called say K-9-2. No, 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 no. Taking care of business. Real men. Oh, with John Ritter, 87. I, I remember none of it. I know the only reason I remember it at all is because, A, I adore John Ritter. Rest in peace. I was, if if I could, if you would ask me at like 15 or 16, who is your comedic idol? I was, I was in love with Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy. But John Ritter was the guy that like, I'd like to be like him. You know, yeah. I would like to be seen like a John Ritter, amiable, you know, likable, funny, physically funny, adore John Ritter. He'd start in some good comedies, some bad comedies. And all I remember about Real Men is that it didn't open in Philadelphia. It opened in Boston and it it's very flatly directed. It's very TV directed. But exactly. that is a movie you could remake today with the same script and it would be unbelievably good. It's you know, a, Give it's, us a quick breakdown on what Real Men is about. Uh, it's basically an action movie parody where there is uh, an exchange that has to happen between the Russians and the Americans, and this CIA agent is murdered, and he happens to look very much like John Ritter. So Jim Belushi, who's kind of a James Bond type but American, uh, essentially recruits John Ritter, who's this nebbish, suburban, just boring guy, and convinces him he's a super spy in order to do this exchange. And it gets crazier and crazier as the movie goes on and it's 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 there's a lot of really good ideas in it and there's no, a lot uh, of i'm sorry do you know anything about the uh the, the uh, truncated release because i know it it was fox i i saw it first had access to it on vhs and i held it in my hand like it was buried treasure i'm like yeah. jim belushi and john ritter in an r-rated action comedy what yeah, they. I, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, it was one of those situations where they had a change at the studio and he shelved a bunch of stuff and it just sat on the shelf for almost a year before it came out theatrically. And they did a really small release. And also John Ritter by 87, I think, when did he do um, Skin Deep, 88? Yeah. <laughs> I think that was his last attempt at making, uh, at starring in a movie. And it just, he wasn't on any TV shows. Uh, he hadn't done Hooperman yet, and, and which wasn't popular. And so I think they were just like, yeah, if Three's a Crowd had gone on for three years, maybe, but not now. Yeah, yeah, let, yeah let's just take a moment to just talk, just to remember the beautiful, lovable, wonderful John Ritter. Love him. God, Sling Blade, 
was a real sign that he could have done a lot of really fascinating, interesting things in India. Oh, yeah. And he, you know, the guy by this point could have reinvented himself as any kind of comedic or dramatic actor. Uh, he died way too young. Yeah. Uh, but I, I can, I want to thank you for joining us. I think the main theme of our show, at least as far as the movies go, is give those, give those, uh, uh, vilified, hated, forgotten obscurities a second look, even if they are something like Real Men or Caddyshack 2. Because not everything has to be a uh, uh, high art. Not everything has to be a great film to be entertaining for 90 minutes. Yeah, and that kind of goes to back to what we started talking about with nostalgia in that, you know, sometimes your nostalgia for an original can ruin the 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 enjoyment you might get from a sequel. And I also think as far as snark goes, some people have nostalgia for hate. Like they're nostalgic for hating a movie. And so they'll continue to hold on to that because they get like a little nostalgic tinge to hate Caddyshack 2, you know, without I, having rewatched it. I know yep. that when I went and saw Maximum oh. Overdrive, holy crap, Ken, wait, Ken. what's happening? Ken, hey, I huge fan of your podcast. Really excited that you were able to do this one. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's great. Before you go, I want to talk to you for a moment, and I'm curious what you guys talked about with Caddyshack 2, but I want to talk about Dan Aykroyd's choice of voice in that film. This is Esther House. Mrs. Esther House. Well, the, it's tied into a plot, to, a plot point. It, the idea that, like, Carl the Gardener was a character that Bill Murray hip-pocketed for years. Like, just that voice that he would do, the mooch, the, the, oh, the sort of uh, talking out of the side of his face. And uh, that was a voice he carried around with him. And so I'm curious with, with Aykroyd, the choice that he makes in that film, is that something that he had carried around for a while? Or was he looking at Carl and thinking, I got to kind of go a step beyond that. And so it's got to be that kind of weird and out there. I had the pleasure of talking to him about that. <laughs> and I'm see, I'm fascinated that he would talk to you about it because he cut me when we talked about Ghostbusters, and I wanted to and Ghostbusters went well. Like he'll talk Ghostbusters all day long, it's fine. But yeah. then when I at the end of it, because it was going well, I was like, hey, I'm gonna see if I can maybe make this happen. Hey, so Dan, uh, I was kind of hoping I could reach out. I'd already talked to a couple of people and they said yes, and I needed to get your approval first, but I was hoping to do a nothing but trouble. And man, that was the end oh, of yeah. our conversation. You can't talk about that one, but he'll talk <laughs> he'll like I uh I love how there are certain films in Dan Aykroyd's filmography that he won't talk about like he was arrested for them. <laughs> well, that one that one he wrote. He wrote it, directed that one. It, it, nothing but trouble is the inside of Dan Aykroyd's head, which is why it's fascinating. <laughs> it's used in a court case. Because you, if you talk to Dan, if you read about Dan, like all the things that he's obsessed with, like he has a collection of badges, he has a collection of IDs, he has a collection of, he has all these weird collections. They're all in there, and it looks yeah. like he just brought his shit to the. And he goes, uh, you know, I also have a uh, collection of badges uh, from around the country, and I thought I'd bring the badges. And you'd be like, okay, Dan, I guess we'll put him in the movie. It's the craziest assortment of his sort of fascinations and fetishes. And it just feels like you went to his garage and he kept putting on weird makeups and penis noses. And you went, yeah. all right, whatever, man, it's cool. It's Ken, give us some highlights or some memorable stuff from your talk with Dan Aykroyd. So I, uh, I met him at a liquor store uh, here in Boston where he was selling his crystal head vodka and there was nobody there. <laughs> oh, I was man. the only person there and I brought my laser disc of neighbors. <laughs> oh, nice. Yep. Which he signed. He happily signed. And we discussed neighbors for uh, uh, maybe a half an hour. 
you got to give away. Whoa, Drew is absolutely fascinated by neighbors. You neighbors gotta is another one that just I'm I'm endlessly interested in because I don't I don't like it very much, but every bone in my body wants to like it. Like it, I want yeah. to neighbors desperately. It has all the elements. It essentially it it, it it's sort of a cross between the burbs and nothing but trouble. <laughs> I just I recently like I just recently read that um Catherine Walker, who played John's wife, uh her husband died immediately before they started shooting this. Yeah. And was close with everybody. So like there was a, a literal power hanging over the set because they all were grieving for se- no wonder this comedy is so completely off axis. Yeah. Well, the other thing is they switched roles uh, two weeks into shooting. Yeah, I know, man. So, so Belushi was playing the, the character that uh, Ackroyd played and Ackroyd also went and got blue contact lenses and had his hair dyed blonde and had this whole, I'm fascinated by Vic. Vic scares the shit out of me in a way that I don't think he would have if Belushi had played him. Belushi's Vic would have been the guy you want to party with. That's the movie that they would have made where he is tempting the Earl across the line like, oh, my God, come party with me. It's like Bluto, you know? Holy shit, come party with Bluto. But the the Vic that Aykroyd plays, I'm afraid to get in a car with that motherfucker. He's what, basically, did, so what did Ackroyd have to say about about neighbors? Any any what anything particularly that you know juicy or interesting? He was disappointed with it because he wanted it. I I think he wanted it to be more like nothing but like darker, and the uh, the idea to put that sort of '40s Looney Tunes music on it was his idea, <laughs> and he was happy that they did that weird theremin stuff. And he he also had a difficult time with it because Belushi was was really in the throes of drug stuff. Yeah. Uh, and that was uh, really unreliable Belushi time. That was, I think, right around the time that the the Saturday Night Live uh, fear incident happened. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and so Belushi wasn't the Belushi that was his friend anymore. And they, he, he kind of associates that movie with sort of their dissolution. One of the things that I love about your podcast, Ken, is that it is so clear that you and I – collect a lot of the same like books and magazines and over the years have probably soaked up a lot of the same media and you have thousands of behind the scenes stories floating around in your head that you probably couldn't sit down and put on index cards one after another if you had to but when things trigger for you when somebody mentions something and you go you know on battle of the network stars in 1978 because it's in there it's it's you've got all that and i love that because I recognize these stories. Like sometimes you'll start one and I'm like, Oh, I remember this or, Oh yeah. Okay. I know it's great. You, you are a computer for this stuff, Ken. Thank you. And I'm so sorry. You also suffer from this malady. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, I think when we were younger, I think one of the reasons that this stuff got lodged so deeply, and I've been thinking about the reason that we process it differently, um, especially with Fangoria coming back into print, which I know Scott's excited about and I'm excited about. And there's, great people working on it, but looking back at Fangoria and and looking at the way I would digest it, I would read every word cover to cover 35 times because I I wanted to just soak it up. I needed to know it like microscopically inside. I needed that. And uh, media was harder to get. You know, the old HBO guides? Oh, yeah. Uh, what my grandmother used to get every, I don't know why, but she used to get two in the mail. 
on the same day. She, so she kept one on her uh, coffee table and she gave the other one to me. Why? Because she knew that I would want to cut out the blocks of the yep. horror and comedy movies and glue them into a scrapbook that I had. I yep. literally am staring <laughs> at a box of those in my office right now. <laughs> I love those old HBO guides. And yeah. you, do you also remember, uh, Drew, this is actually a boner cor correction. In a couple of episodes ago, I mentioned Deal of the Century in regards to an Entertainment Weekly issue. But oh, yeah. Entertainment Weekly wasn't even out yet. And I, thanks to somebody on Twitter, I realized that where I saw that image was like AMC used to put out a, a magazine that looked just like the HBO guide. Yeah. Now, and it's funny because that magazine that you're talking about is not the same one that I'm thinking of, but there's a magazine that I went and recently started looking for on eBay and a couple of other places called Coming Attractions. Yes. Mm. Which ran for a few years and and its high point was 82, 83, early 84 ish. Is this a normal, new, a normal bookstore magazine? A bookstore magazine, and okay. it was exhaustive. It was one of those yeah. where it was clearly put together by a maniac in a basement somewhere. <laughs> it was like it was like a non-genre in a fantastique. Yeah, it was, it, and it was fascinating. It was really dense. It didn't last long, but it had complete listings of what was coming out each month. And I pretty exhaustive. Worth I'm. I wish I had started tracking them down earlier because I think we've already gone through some of the period that they covered most exhaustively. I think uh, I have some of those too, which you're welcome to if I can dig them up. I want to talk to you about one TV thing because this is one of my favorite TV things from the '80s and uh, near and dear to me. Um, it is, I think, one of the scariest things that ever happened on television. Midnight Hour. Do you remember <laughs> the Twilight Zone revival, the 80s one? Do you remember the Nightcrawlers episode directed by Freakin? Yes. Yes. Holy, holy shit, that thing is scary. We did cover this show, but we never mentioned that episode. Good call. We did. Oh, my, yeah. oh, my God, that episode. It's based on a Robert McCammon short story. About oh, a Vietnam vet who got hosed with something crazy in the jungle. Yeah, and now anytime, don't tell me anything else. I'm going to watch yeah. this tonight. Oh, it's, it's great. so worth tracking. It's so good. And it's freaking doing TV. But I remember the night it aired, it was one of those things, I think, because of when I saw it and because I was surprised it was on television, it felt way crazier than a lot of films I saw in that era. It, it's pretty crazy, though. There, I mean, I also brought up when we talked about this earlier before you joined us. I talked about the Shadow Men episode, which is amazing, uh, and my favorite episode, which is Wordplay, which is one of the best anything ever. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I there. I think that I think that revival had some real high points. Yeah, it it didn't totally work, but man, they they understood twilight zone in a way that was pretty clear in some of the choices they made of material and seeing like mccammon adapted seeing new voices that fit into that twilight zone model so well was really nice and it's what made now we're it gonna get into like horror novels yeah but they updated it well it wasn't just a nostalgia trip it wasn't like yeah. alfred hitchcock presents the new alfred hitchcock presents which just remade old episodes of the original it, it was really weird it was really a continuation of of the series in the same sort of vein but modern which was kind of great yeah. But anyway, I just like I said, I just wanted to drop by Ken and tell you how much I enjoy the podcast and take a moment to nerd out with you on some of these things. Um, I am so glad you came by to do this, and we'll have you back again because I'm sure there is way more we can pick your brain about, man. Oh yeah, anytime. I'm I can talk this stuff all day. I'm so I'm so happy to be here. It's nice to have some fellow some fellow people who suffer from this.
One thing about living in Santa Carla I never could stomach. All the damn vampires. <laughs>